Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind, Fox.com's Libby Nelson. And we are going to do something a little special today and throughout the month of July. We are calling it The Weeds Time Machine. And we are Libby, going to can be you do it with the voice? The voice? Weeds Time Machine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so the, the, we, 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 need some, we need some sound effects for when we enter the time machine. So the plan is to travel into the past and consider some interesting, noteworthy sort of policy debates that happened in the past before the time that any of us were working as journalists. We will eventually go back to the misty days of the early 20th century. But we're looking today at a sort of policy debate that happened pretty soon before I at least came to Washington, in some ways the last big policy story that I missed and that came before Darren Libby's time as well, but whose consequences shaped our lives in different ways. And that is No Child Left Behind. So we will enter the weeds time machine, return to the year 2000, and think about the origins of education reform. <laughs> What's going on? What What is this all about? So to get to No Child Left Behind, in a sense, you have to go back to like the early 80s, but we're not going to do much of that. So what we're looking at as George W. Bush is running for office um, and as we get to sort of the policy debate and the political debate that become the law, that becomes No Child Left Behind, we have this sort of increased focus on specific aspects of education and what's going wrong in specific aspects of education. And we go from sort of this general American schools are not good enough and we're getting beat internationally rhetoric of the early 1980s to a narrower focus on achievement as measured by test scores and on the gaps in test scores between white students, students of color, and then also students with other kinds of setbacks such as disabilities or learning English and what those gaps mean and whether they can be solved. And so the world that creates No Child Left Behind, which is ultimately a law requiring that kids be tested every year in third through eighth grades and once in high school in reading and math, and imposes consequences on schools if students are not making enough progress on those tests. What we're looking at sort of to begin with is this idea of closing achievement gaps um, and getting not only improving education across the board, but improving the education specifically of students who have been, quote unquote, left behind um, in our school system. I mean, it's interesting because in some ways it's like a kind of very left-infused idea that we need to care a lot about inequality, that we need to care a lot about racial inequality, but also class inequality, spatial inequality, disability, other things like that. But it really like it locates these issues in the school system in a way that I think contemporary progressives wouldn't in the same kind of way. Right. And it says that, like, we need to have no child left behind. That's like George W. Bush's pivot to the center. But like the way we're going to have no child left behind is by doing stuff in the K-12 school system, not by a universal child tax credit like Joe Biden is trying to do or like a massive investment in public housing. There's lots of ways you could determine to leave no child behind. But this is like both a general egalitarian aspiration and also this like very specific idea about schools. Right. And there's the intellectual lineage here and there's the political lineage. And they're both super important. Like the intellectual lineage comes from this growing movement that actually started in the South and with governors who included Bill Clinton to sort of paying more attention to education and then 
to an increased amount of like testing and accountability, basically because there was not until like well into the 80s a way that you could look at a map or look at test scores and be like, this is how these kids are doing on reading and math state by state. And that goes from that to this idea of, so what are these overall tests that test, you know, you're just looking at every school or every kid, like who is that leaving out and are they being left out of any progress that's being made? And as you say, I think that's actually an idea that we've seen a lot, for example, in the economic discourse about this year, that looking at the overall numbers is not enough. We need to look at people who might be being left out of prosperity. But at the time, this was really focused on education. Politically, this is all playing out in the context of George W. Bush's 2000 campaign, the idea that Republicans need to close the gap on education, which is historically a really democratic issue, that Bush needs votes from women, um, he needs votes from people who are Hispanic specifically. And they really seized on this as like, this is the issue that's going to seize the center of America, you know, and really pivot them to Bush. And I think that's like one of the extraordinary things about this. Like, it's not just like, oh, George W. Bush's education department had a specific idea about education and set out to sort of implement it. This was a huge deal. This was a huge deal in the campaign. This was a huge deal in Congress. And this was like the focus of national policy on helping sort of the next generation. And I think that's really where the huge amount of faith sort of that you see in education as as a difference maker shows up um, in a way that maybe now, 20 years later, looks a little naive. Right. I would love to get a little bit more of a sense just because it seems in kind of certainly like a post Great Recession world. I've had so much trouble wrapping my head around the idea that like the consensus top issue that Congress needed to address was education, both because it's, you know, often seen as more of a state or local issue than a federal issue. And also because like bread and butter issues like that, they'll often be kind of nice to have things in public opinion polls, but they won't spring to the top in terms of urgency. And I realize that I know less about this than I, I thought I did as we've been planning this episode. Like how much of this was an actual feeling, you know, showing up in public opinion polls that education was the federal issue par excellence? And how much was there this deliberate political move going on on part of the Bush Republicans to say, you're concerned about inequality, you're concerned about these kind of broader, less concrete concerns, we're using our education bill to address these other things that you've said America needs to take care of. So I think this is where the time machine aspect comes into play. 2001, I'm sorry, I'm going to say something mind blowing here. 2001 was a different year and it, it was in the past and people's concerns were different. But there's this really fascinating poll from summer 2001 on what you think are extremely important issues facing America. And this is, I think, something that really, like, as you're saying, Dara, like, people always, like, you can push poll or prod poll people on education, like, and they'll always say, you know, it's important. It's something that we need to do well. Education was the top issue in this poll above things like The whole list of issues is amazing. First is education. Second is prescription drugs for older Americans. Third is energy conservation. Fourth is a patient's bill of rights. Fifth is increased oil and gas production. Sixth is price caps on electricity. And seventh is raising the minimum wage. And then after that, you finally get the first, like, which is just wild knowing that this is two months before 9-11. After that, you finally get the first national security issue, which is missile defense. So yeah, this is like a different time in America is I think kind of the point I'm making here. To Dara's point, though, right, I mean, I do think the high salience given to the education, prescription drug, patients' bill of rights issues reflected political entrepreneurship on the part of the political parties. So Lynn Vavrick's book, The Message Matters, right, she talks about the challenge that Bush faced of running a presidential campaign in what was perceived certainly at the beginning of his campaign to be a time of peace and prosperity. So it was like, well, what was he going to do? Right. So he exploited the idea that the Clinton administration was sleazy. That was like a big part of his campaign, restore honor and dignity to the White House. And he also wanted to stake out a claim to the center ground that did not involve fundamental compromises with Republican Party interest group politics. And precisely because federal education spending is not that high, You can propose a meaningful increase, like percentage wise, without actually spending that much money. It was consistent with his tax cutting aspirations to say we're going to spend more money on on education. And you sort of frequently see this, like Ron DeSantis boosted teacher pay recently, right? This is like a thing. If you're a Republican and you need to make like some concession to widely held progressive views, like we should put more money into schools is something you can do. But then he paired it with this reform idea 
right? That like the bureaucracy is not doing what it should be doing. And so that's a reason why you should elect a Republican to address this kind of progressive concern, right? That it's a sensible Republican will make schools better. Right. That I'm not going to be like a crazy, mean spirited budget cutter, but I'm going to be a hard nosed reformer, not a just kind of give the unions whatever they want person. And there was this uh, let me you can maybe say more about what this was. But there was this idea that Texas had done something important and good on education when he was I mean, he was unlike our modern presidential candidates. He wasn't like a real estate guy or somebody who gave an incredible speech once at the convention. He was like the governor of a big state. And part of the idea of his campaign was to say that like he had done good things as governor and was going to bring that good stuff to Washington. And education was a part of that narrative. Yeah, there's this strand of normalcy running through this whole thing that's very odd from our current vantage point. But one thing I would say first is that it wasn't crazy that this was the issue that he would seize on as a Republican. There was a really actually fairly strong bipartisan sort of reformist education tradition that was not necessarily supported like by the grassroots of the party. But like being a Republican governor, especially in the South, who had some ideas on education was like, he wasn't the first one. It's a a long history. And yes, as Matt was sort of alluding to, during Bush's time as governor, there were these massive gains on Texas's own state tests on reading and math. And especially for students in Houston, in particular, run by Rod Page, who would go on to be education secretary. And there was this idea that there was this quote unquote, Texas miracle in education, that Texas has totally turned its schools around. It may or may not shock you that there have now been a lot of analyses of this. To what degree this happened is not entirely established, but I would say it's certainly fair to say that if you're looking at sort of national tests as validators, there may have been some improvement. It was not as dramatic as the improvement that the Bush team touted, but you know, it was part of the story that he cared a lot about education. It was his compassionate conservative issue or one of them. He was going to take this to the national level. And as as we were saying, it was a sort of quiet time in America And so politicians did have the ability to set the agenda on whether it's prescription drugs or education or oil and gas, whatever sort of he focused on became what was pulled about because there weren't these giant undercurrents that politicians had to respond to. They were able to lead a little bit more on what issues they wanted to put out there. I mean, that's true for, you know, mid 2001. But as you've already alluded to, Libby, like in between the Bush campaign running on prioritizing what would become No Child Left Behind and the bill actually crossing the president's desk we had a 9-11. So like you could absolutely see an alternate universe where that sucked all of the oxygen out of the room for an entire domestic agenda. And then Bush became a wartime president for the rest of his time. And this fell by the wayside, just like the long lamented failed 2001 push for comprehensive immigration reform fell by the wayside. But that didn't happen. And I gather that not only did it not happen, but that actually 9-11 weirdly kind of helped No Child Left Behind become a priority for Congress. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the congressional procedure on this bill a little bit because it's actually really interesting and different. We're looking at a couple of things, right? Like we're looking at a crucial moment in education policy, but I think you could argue we're also looking at this interesting inflection point on domestic policy, like big domestic policy priorities writ large in American history. So after the 2000 election, which was, I would say, disputed is, you know, the nicest way to put that, there was this immediate focus on getting something done on education as a way of cementing Bush as basically a legitimate president, as somebody who could get things done with Congress, who could pass a bill with overwhelming majorities. And they did an interesting thing. They did not say, okay, education committee in in the House and education committee in the Senate, which is normally how you would do a bill like this, like go forward and do your thing. There was a sort of a special bipartisan group set up to negotiate an education bill. So at this point, we're in like summer 2001. They get kind of far. There's some areas of agreement. There are some sticking points. The whole thing, I think it would be unfair to say it was like on the verge of death, but it had certainly stalled out a little bit. George W. Bush on 9-11 is in Florida reading to children to talk about education, famously. So this push is like still very much happening. After 9-11, there is a lot of pressure to show, once again, continuity and legitimacy of government. And in my notes, what I have is John Boehner pass NCLB or the terrorists win. And I don't think it was like quite 
that blunt, but it wasn't much less blunt than that. I mean, the message was very much, it is important to pass a bill to show that America can govern, that we haven't been disrupted, that we can do a big unifying bipartisan achievement. Hey, we have this thing that's like 75% of the way there. And that sort of becomes the vehicle. And I talked to, in 2013, I talked to a lot of education people who were there at the time. And they talk about how this was this sort of like magical time and everybody really cared about this and everybody came together. And you take a step back and it's like, well, yeah, because they needed to be able to do something. And there was a lot of pressure and a lot of, it was a really like high bipartisanship moment. And you end up with what is basically the last dramatically bipartisan legislative, like big domestic policy legislation possibly ever. I mean, the margins are just like out of this world. It's over 90 votes in the Senate. And there's a very weird, like motley far right left, a handful of people voting against it. But it is this like centrist, bipartisan, yes, what we're going to do is we're going to test kids and we're going to hold schools accountable. And we're going to give some more money. And like within like three years, the consensus behind this bill had completely fallen apart and it has continued to fall apart for sort of the next decade and a half after that. So I think that's a good time to take a break and then try to delve into the specifics. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, so obviously, like, this is a big piece of legislation, and it says a lot of things. But, like, broadly speaking, like, what did the bill do? Uh, because, you know, whenever you have big legislation, then you have backlash. There tends to be a lot of attention paid to, like, the most specifically backlashy elements of it. But, like, part of the point of the time machine is, like, how did it seem at the time? Like, what changes did they make to education policy? So the, there's a, a couple of things. There is an overall increase. There's a billion increase, which is not a huge increase, but is an increase, especially in the context of the time for education funding. And paired with that, there is a requirement that schools test students every year from third to eighth grade in reading and math um, and once in high school. And then there's this idea that all students and specific subgroups of students need to be making progress toward the big overall goal. And the big overall goal, there is, I would say, reading sort of contemporary sources. The way we look at this now is like this goal was super naive and they were always going to change it. It's actually not clear that that was the case at the time. But the goal was like by 2014, every student in America will be proficient in reading and proficient in math. And it says a lot that we're all like, oh, that was never going to happen. But 
you know, at the time there was one school of thought that like, oh, of course we're going to adjust these goals. We're going to reauthorize the law. We're going to adjust the goals. We'll give schools more time. There was another actually quite optimistic strain that is like, no, like this is really possible. Like people were out there saying, you know, we're going to do this, which is really interesting to me. It is viewed now as a symbolic goal, but at the time, at least in some quarters, it was taken very, very literally. The idea that you needed to be testing or that you needed to be making progress towards a goal was actually not new. There's a pretty long history that had at that point already gone back about a decade. The idea that was new in No Child Left Behind and then what later became the locus of the controversy was the idea of accountability. And another way to say accountability is consequences. There would be some kind of consequences for schools that were not making quote unquote adequate year progress toward this overall goal. The other thing that's really different here is this idea of subgroups and racial equity. You're not just responsible for your school stores overall. You're responsible for your students of color, for students with disabilities, for students with limited English proficiency, I believe is the, is the technical term that they use, students who are learning English. On the idea that those are students who could be sort of flailing, but subsumed in overall improvements, you have to make sure they are improving as well. You know, in some ways, the equity focus set the stage for the backlash because the classic, you know, public opinion finding about American public education is that people have a lot of concern about public education in America, but a lot of satisfaction with their school that their child attends. And one element of the equity analysis, and I know that this was very important to the to the Democrats working on the bill, was to say that, look, just because you are a white middle class person living in a suburb where you feel like you moved out here for the good schools and the schools are good and the kids who are like your kid are going to college, blah, 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 that school systems like that are not exempted from scrutiny of what they are doing, that they need to be making adequately yearly progress toward universal proficiency for subgroups, for school lunch recipients, for English language learners, for African-American kids, right? And big suburban school districts that are pretty white and pretty affluent have like non-zero numbers of children falling into those groups. And the pressure was really on. If you did take that 2014 goal, literally, it was tough. Every school district in America was being asked to meet a much higher bar than the bar of like, do the people who go to the school mostly feel it's okay? I think yes and no. I mean, it was tied really tightly to Title I. The impact on high poverty schools is much, much greater. At the same time, most schools, they're in districts, they're in states. Like the mechanisms, they're not like, oh, like, you know, we're going to go granular at the school level on who has to test and who they have to test. So yes, ultimately, like it ends up implemented on a much wider basis. Right. So I was like a little bit too old for me and people my age to be impacted by this. But I know my cousins living in the suburbs, going to the good schools, blah, blah, blah. But their parents came to be very concerned about the volume of testing that was happening and so on and so forth. And I mean, I was saying it's like, look, like there's a reason they're doing this, right? That like it's an equity concern, right? That like you can't just kind of say, well, you know, like the average student in affluent suburbs is doing fine. So there's no question to be asked about what's happening here. Um, and you also can't say like, well, I don't know, your parents went to college, so you don't need to take the test, right? Like, it would be totally unfair to, like, neglect poor kids, students of color, English language learners, things like that, and subsume them under some broad average. And so, like, yeah, that meant, you know, everybody's got to take the tests. But that's not the same as, like, the sort of normal public's view that, like, some schools someplace else may be in trouble and need some big changes. And that's true. I mean, I think you see that view basically across the board. It's really, and it goes throughout. I mean, this is like the most consistent finding in education polling is like a lot of people are concerned about the abstract idea of the schools, but the share that say that their school is bad is usually like 20% or less. In 2001, so as the bill is being negotiated, 51% of adults said their neighborhood school was an A or a B. 
and 13% it was said it was a D or an F. So you're looking, I mean, even just beyond sort of the like, quote unquote, really good schools type of places, like people have, it's a local institution and people have faith in the local institution while losing faith in the national one. But the testing backlash is really pretty real and pretty immediate and can be seen kind of across the board. I mean, it, it tracks the implementation of No Child Left Behind really closely. So I think as we look at backlash, there's two factors. There's the schools where there actually are consequences. And most people like their schools and don't necessarily want there to be consequences. The consequences scale up in severity. So you start with like mandatory tutoring and support services. And most people think that that is a good idea. Like if your students aren't doing well, you should be like helping them. It scales up to something that is called like a restructuring, which could be anything from firing the principal, firing all of the teachers, turning everybody out of the building, turning it over to a charter school and having it turned into a charter school. That's kind of the like, there's no like death penalty under NCLB, but that's as close as it as it usually gets. People don't like that. Like that is another really consistent finding. People like their schools. They don't want them closed. They don't want them replaced. Like people sometimes don't like their schools and still don't want them closed. Um, so that kind of level... That penalty is not, it's imposed for sure. I mean, it's imposed on thousands of schools, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of schools in America. So it's not like every other school is being shut down. There's 130,000 schools in America. Thank you. I meant to look that up and I didn't. Um, in 2014, there were, I think, about 5,000 in that last structure. So it's like, it's not a zero number, but it's not a huge number either um, that, are, that are undergoing that penalty. You know, that's an interesting one of these, right? Because I think if you asked people in the abstract, okay, are 5% of schools unacceptably bad? Like, that sounds like a plausible estimate that's, like, perfectly consistent with the, like, most people like their schools, most people have some concerns about the national situation. But then, you know, it does become an issue, right? So the school that my son attends, and that's across the street from my house, you know, it was targeted for closure some years ago. And, you know, it was, they were not making adequate yearly progress. They were falling into uh, one of the high consequences belts. Also, DCPS at that time had sort of a long-term trajectory of falling enrollment. So, you know, there was a case just based on the numbers for saying, look, like, we don't need a school at this location. The kids who are in this catchment area can go elsewhere. The other schools that are sort of vaguely nearby uh, are doing better on their AYP goals. So we're going to just shut the school down. People didn't want that. I don't know. Like they, they wanted to go to the school that was close to their house. There were alumni of the school living in the neighborhood. There was a parent-teacher organization that was invested in the school. And, you know, eventually like they didn't close it. They did bring in a new principal. And, you know, like now the scores are up and everybody, everybody loves the school. And what's interesting is you can sort of look at it two ways, right? You can say, okay, like this was the backlash, like this was the problem. They wanted to shut down schools, but people love their schools. But you can also say that, look, the pressure to do something is the reason that they made – they ultimately didn't shut the school down, but they did make some fairly fundamental changes uh, that now most people think were changes for, for the better. Right. And that was the the animating idea on some level was you can't just say, well, look, we're going to just bring in more tutors forever. Like if the school's really bad, something should happen. And I both see that that didn't really like work out with the public, but it like it still feels correct to me as an analysis of the situation since like people are wrong to like everybody thinks their local school is above average but like that's not true like logically or empirically or anything else like that i mean i wouldn't even say necessarily that everyone thinks their school is above average but i would say that it's probably true that those who don't think their school is above average think that the problem is insufficient you know resources and that their school is fixable and that the reason that President Bush was talking about the soft bigotry and low ex of low expectations, like in this context is super relevant here, right? On the one hand, you have compassionate conservatives saying, we shouldn't just accept that students who are already worse off, who already have fewer chances in life are just going to be failed by our public schools. But then, you know, the public opinion polls where people say that schools are failing, but their school is doing okay, can also be read to a certain extent as people saying, well, yeah, I've gotten my kids out. But you just need to burn the rest of the system down, that there's nothing left there that's worthwhile. You know, some a kind of like an education version of white flight. And so 
it does strike me that once you are looking at the prospect of like a particular school getting closed down, you're going to be mobilizing a bunch of people who might not have loved their school and might love the idea of reform, but didn't necessarily think that that reform was going to take the form of like, shut their school down was going to say this school is unfixable. And Libby, I'm wondering this kind of tension between what it takes to improve a school and like whether more money is the is in fact the right answer. This was also one of the kind of paradoxes of NCLB implementation, right? That like the bill was passed largely on the thinking that something other than funding was needed, but also there was a big Title I funding chunk. There was a funding chunk, but the conventional wisdom at the time was very much that money was not the problem in education that we had tried increasing spending and we still had these achievement gaps. There has now been a pretty robust body of research that is like actually increasing spending is the reason that and that achievement gaps narrowed for a while and then stopped narrowing, um, or at least was a, m- a much bigger contributor than people realized. But I think like when we think about these questions of how people feel about their schools and how they feel about No Child Left Behind, a lot of this just comes down to the testing. I mean, what you see in the polling from the time is like, This was framed very much as the school's result on one test is going to decide whether it lives or dies. And that's a little exaggerated on like a couple of fronts, depending on how you, you know, consider a restructure, quote unquote, versus a closure. Like in a a restructure, there is a school still there. It, It just may not be the school that you have a tie to. But what you see is a lot of the public thinks like tests are not how we capture whether or not the school is successful. Putting this many stakes on this one test is unfair. And I think that is where you sort of see a uniting in the backlash of parents who might actually even agree that their school is not the best or who agree overall that like there are some concerns with the, why are you testing my kids all the time? My school is good and this is making it worse sort of mentality. And there's sort of a uniting around the idea that the test is the wrong mechanism and that the testing really becomes the focus of the backlash and has continued to be the focus of the backlash. I think you also have to talk about the union politics here, right? Because, you know, so a, a very good friend of mine from from college, you know, she went into Teach for America um, after that. And then after TFA sort of became, you know, an education administrator type person. And she was really for a while like a like a school assassin in uh, Louisiana and in Massachusetts, um, you know, who would come in for drastic restructurings, right? I- including at one point, like in Lawrence, I think they basically closed all of the public schools and reopened them as as charters. But what she would say, right, is that like from the parents' point of view, when people say like, I don't want my school to go away, they mean like the building. They mean like their favorite teacher there and the playground and its role as a community institution that like they don't want a nuclear bomb to fall on the school, right? But that like the school was still there, right? Like if you were a student in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and you wanted your kids to go to elementary school, middle school, high school, like all of those schools still existed, that what was happening in the restructure that people didn't like is that the personnel was changing. And the people whose job it is, is to like represent the personnel, they had an interest in exaggerating what this meant for you, the customer, because it was very dramatic to them, the provider, right? That like everybody had, it's not even true that like all the teachers got fired in this restructuring, but everybody had to reapply for their old job, essentially, which like you can totally understand, like people at any employer I've ever heard of would hate it. If new management came in and was like, everybody's got to reapply for your old job now. And, you know, 10% of you aren't going to get it. And we're going to we're going to change how things work. But that's not like the same thing as like the government is bulldozing the schools. And then it gets linked to this idea that like people start using the phrase high stakes testing constantly, right? As if like what's going to happen is like. Like what? Like how high were the stakes ever in this testing? Right, the stakes were were genuinely pretty high compared to the stakes that there had been previously. But the stakes were not necessarily as high as you might, you know, when you look at this list of consequences. It's like, okay, this is like a this is a long process that you're going through before you get to anybody losing their job. And I would say they were not telling people, okay, the first stakes is that if the kids do bad on the test, they're going to get extra tutors. 
right? Like, like the the reason this was able to command uh, consensus in the legislative backrooms is that like the consequences are fairly moderate, right? And like clearly beneficial at the kind of early stages. And the idea of the escalating consequences is not only were your kids doing bad on the tests, but then even when we bring the tutors and the extra resources in, they're not doing any better. So now we're getting like frustrated with you. And part of part of the backlash to that is just like annoyance at the testing. And part of the backlash to that though is, you know, like effective politics on the part of the teachers who had, you know, extrinsic reasons not to like this framework, um, who pocketed the, you know, you could take the gains in funding and then push for other changes in in other things going forward, and who I think successfully um, elevated people's level of anxiety around what this testing meant sort of beyond what was actually in the four corners of the bill. Like when we look back on this era, it's like it's not true that like in the NCLP era, like huge swaths of the American school system were shut down. Like none of that ever happened. Yeah. And I think when we talk about I mean, the the role of the unions in NCLB itself is actually really fascinating. This was a compromise with which initially the unions were, especially um, the American Federation of Teachers, were more or less initially on board. They that it was and this came out of sort of a, a focus on standards and accountability that the AFT had been playing ball with the idea that like, you know, So at the time that No Child Left Behind was passed, the big enemy that progressives and liberals were fighting against and Democrats were fighting against was vouchers. And it was a huge victory that there was not a significant voucher component in the bill. And so that's, first of all, just sort of orienting where the political debate was. Because there was no huge voucher component in the bill, vouchers dropped out of the the federal conversation like very quickly after that. Um, And so we sort of already are getting a a realignment. And by 2003-04, which is actually basically like the first year of the law is being implemented, the NEA, uh, which was our, always kind of the more stridently anti-NCLB of the two unions, is like full on against it. The AFT is starting to trend that way. And like within a couple of years, they are both fully like, this law is bad. We thought it would come with uh, more financial support and more funding than it ultimately did. The focus on testing is terrible. And like, I think one thing to think about too is the source that most parents have for learning about their schools is teachers. And if teachers hate the law and you're not seeing like an immediate compensatory, like, whoa, everybody's test scores went up 25 points in the first year. This law is amazing, which is not how education works. The idea that it's going to remain popular is, is, is basically like that's that's a very tough hill to climb. Kevin Carey, who's a, an education policy expert, he may have been on the podcast at some point, uh, wrote, in sort of the twilight of NCLB, that it had all of the downsides of being viewed as a punitive, draconian, anti-teacher law, and none of the upsides that a draconian law might have have in forcing actual changes. And it, so it, it, from a reformer's perspective, it ended up with the worst of both worlds. Um, and that's kind of where we are as the Bush administration in general kind of starts to, to sour in the 05, 06, 07 range, as teachers have fully turned against this law and the public is sort of is, is coming along with them. That seems like a good place for us to take another break, because really, in a sense, these are all kind of using the white papers of legislative text, uh, this whole Weeds Time Machine concept. We are not doing our our white paper for this episode, but we'll instead continue to talk about the legacy of NCLB. So, okay, like a big, dumb question you could ask about this is like, did this work? I guess obviously not every student is proficient in reading and math, uh, but did things improve? Like, was was this good? So this is where this has a really unsatisfying answer, which is probably really what went wrong with No Child Left Behind is like, yes, a little bit in some ways for some students, certainly not as dramatically as it was supposed to. Um, And I think it's actually worth talking quickly here about expectations and public expectations of the law. When No Child Left Behind was passed, most Americans thought that their schools would be able to reach the 100% proficiency mark by 2013-14, which is just a good reminder to me that like, I find that laughably naive. And I think some policymakers at the time did, but like, people really believed this was possible. This did not happen. Um, instead, you know, it, it, we limped on with sort of more and more schools missing the goal. So that part, like literally on that part, total failure did not happen. Shock, shock to everyone. 
scores on the sort of national assessments that are not built to measure whether a policy is working, but end up being sort of the benchmarks that we look at, continue to sort of modestly increase. In some states, the racial achievement gap closed again, fairly modestly, um, which means that, you know, Black and Hispanic students were making faster progress uh, than white students um, on those tests. Some of the schools facing on a very, like, more micro school level, the schools facing the most punitive consequences, in some cases, actually did improve. Um, and so from that from that perspective, I, I mean, I think, Matt, what you're talking about with, with your son's school is actually, like, not only the best case, but something that actually did happen is that there were schools that faced that, that faced sort of the worst possible consequences and ultimately did improve somewhat as a concept. At this point, I think I all, you also have to think and talk a little bit about the idea that the system was g- being gamed, which was really widespread. The, the idea was widespread. It is unclear how widespread the gaming was, that everybody was cheating on these tests, that students were being kept back out of the grades where they were tested or were being like sort of shunted off into other subgroups. Whether or not that actually happened on a super, super widespread scale, what we have is a lot of anecdotes that also sort of contributed to the overall perception that if there were any improvements, it was because people were cheating, uh, because tests are bad. And so even though we did see some modest improvements um, in some places, we didn't see what was promised. And there was, for people who were sort of against the idea of testing to begin with, a really easy way to, to, to discount what was happening there. So... I guess the other way to ask this question is, given that we are now in a kind of post-NCLB like policy and political context, has the ending of the NCLB era shown any kind of difference in how schools are achieving? You know, did getting rid of all of these onerous things make it easier for schools to successfully teach their students? So what we've really entered now, I think, is a period of, of stasis. One reason that it's hard to figure out how much No Child Left Behind helped is the idea of testing standards and accountability actually predates No Child Left Behind in some states by like a decade. And the gradual improvement of scores, the gradual closing of gaps also predates No Child Left Behind. So there is no like if you're looking at the graph, there's no like obvious No Child Left Behind breakpoint where it's like, wow, all of a sudden fourth graders are way better at reading than different fourth graders were five years ago. There also is, if you look at what's happened since about 09, there has been a total flatlining, more or less, um, in some cases, even a slight fall in scores. So there are a lot of reasons for this. The way these tests work is they don't, you know, they don't test you as a fourth grader and then as a fifth grader and then as a sixth grader. Like some tests work that way. But the, the, the national test that, that people look at to say, like, how are the schools doing doesn't. So all we can really say is, like, this group of fourth graders is better or worse at this than a different group of fourth graders was several years ago. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. But it is interesting that we sort of had a federal and state era of doing a lot of stuff to try to improve schools. And we saw improvements. And then we had a like briefer Obama era continuing to do a lot of stuff or arguably even more stuff with some flatlining. And we have now entered an era of much more hands-off, like almost not a uh, very pre-No Child Left Behind status quo early 1990s on education. Um, and arguably at the state level, I would say even pre-1990 in terms of how invested states are in this idea of like improving their schools on and their schools' results on tests. And we have seen as a result a flatlining. Um, and so it's hard to say exactly what's causing it, but it's certainly you can certainly say that like removing the no child left behind uh, strictures uh, in in 2015 when they ultimately were has not led to like necessarily an explosion of super creative teaching and you know massive learning gains um, that have shown up in any any foreseeable way. And I do think that it it to some extent lays the uh, groundwork for some of the the big fight now about what people have decided they want to call critical race theory um, in schools, not in a direct sense, but it's like there was this this like other idea, right, that was both that you had to narrow the curriculum, right? Like if you were going to be judged purely on people's reading and math scores, it incentivized a heavy and and Bush said this, you know, he was like, people say, well, teachers are just going to teach to the test. Uh, I think the way you do that is you teach kids reading and math. Right. And it was, you know, it was it was a genuine, I think, like disagreement of like worldviews that like people criticize this as saying, well, it was going to narrow the focus of what you teach. And he accepted that that might have been 
a consequence, but that it was good. Um, and that the kind of like back to basics was a desired outcome. And then also, though, you have an explosion of interest in, look, are there systemic social issues that are what's behind these disparities? Like, is it reasonable to keep kind of turning up the heat on K-12 schools as like the locus of social justice? And a big line of thought, you know, in education schools was to like argue very forcefully that like, no, that like that's not fair, that that is uh, not, you know, a, a reasonable like diagnosis of inequality in America and that, you know, we need to we need to talk about um, like how society functions and not just how schools function. What's interesting, though, is that like the scores really did flatline after this, right? Like we may have reached like a more sophisticated understanding of like the nature of inequality in American life. But what we didn't do was like address that inequality through some other method, right? Like it, it, it would be cool if the story was, you know, after 2014, we like pivoted to focusing on, you know, housing and healthcare and wraparound services. And that really worked super well. Uh, instead, we, I think like pivoted conceptually, to like a broader understanding of the sources of inequality, but we did not like in practice or at least in a clearly measurable way, like achieve positive results from any of that. Yeah, I would say, I mean, there is one thing I should say about scores flatlining before we move on, which is there is a strong case that because we're looking at different groups of students, one thing that's happened is the students we're looking at have changed what the scores are. Um, it's a compositional effect. So the whole like fundamental premise of No Child Left Behind was that white students were doing better than students of color and then students who were learning English. And we have seen a shift in the school system so that white students are less represented than they were in 2000. And the students where there was this concern that they weren't doing as well have made up a greater point. At the same time, if we were being super effective at closing achievement gaps, there wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be seeing this compositional effect. So it may not be quite as dire as flatlining makes it sound. Um, but it's certainly, you know, I think it's certainly fair to say we're not seeing like a vast, vast improvement. Um, and I think there has been on the left. So there have been a couple of pivots away from the idea that we should be improving schools at all on like on, on the national level as a major focus of national policy. The right never liked No Child Left Behind. We didn't really have time to get into this, but they turned against it also, like as soon as as soon as people started turning and running. Like they were like, this is too much federal intrusion. And that was really what a lot of them believed to begin with. The left certainly pivoted back to, first of all, the idea that funding matters. And then we've hit a point where the line that George W. Bush used and that Obama used quite frequently as well is that education is the civil rights issue of our time. And I think it's really telling that when Trump said that in 2017, a bunch of news outlets basically had to run stories saying, like, this isn't a new and terrible idea that Trump thought up. This is actually, like, really standard rhetoric on education. And I think it actually does sound wild in 2021 to say education is the civil rights issue of our time. And I think that's the divide, right? There's On the one hand, like, you have an education department. You have a lot of people whose job it is to improve education. On the other hand, you have the, like, broader idea of public policy and, like, is education the number one thing that we can be doing to, you know, eradicate racial inequality or achieve greater opportunity or improve the economy, which we haven't really talked about, but is also like a always a huge driving force. Personally, I am fascinated to see if the child tax credit sticks around, what effect we're going to see on test scores, because I think we are about to enter a really fascinating test case for this, like, basically alternate theory that, like, Poverty is the problem. And I think this is also where the, you have the difference between, like, what should a president be doing and, like, what should the education department be doing? I think there's a gap between, like, yes, like, we should continue to make sure schools improve because that's important and, like, improving schools should be our number one sort of priority. And I think that's where we've seen sort of the pivot away from this um, and, and back toward the idea that there are greater sources of inequality and there are bigger problems in America than sort of eighth grade math test scores. Right. I mean, I think you've just kind of diagnosed a lot of the problem with any post-NCLB federal education policy, though, right, is that if the genius of NCLB was to use a fairly low funding lift to say we are doing something on this issue that everyone agrees is important and we're doing it with a frame that is going to help the least among us, and then that ends up 
not being a consensus opinion that that's the right approach, you end up kind of inevitably going into, well, we need more resources, whether those are being deployed to education or, to, you know, to, just to alleviating economic inequality, which is going to raise an ideological or just like in-group, out-group reaction of why is my money going to this other thing? Or the ideological reaction of the federal government got into education policy where it wasn't supposed to be to begin with, and now it's trying to use it as a lever to grow government. It's, it is a little bit hard to understand what a good lane for federal education policy would be now that this idea that the federal government provides the standards and gives states the tools to get their systems up to par, and then you know states are the ones kind of doing the curricular legwork, has fallen apart. Well, and I, I also think there's so many um, – there was, like, so many moving pieces to this consensus. It, like, involved a lot of contentious ideas that it can fall apart in a lot of different ways that I think we we now don't have a consensus on, right? And so, like, one thing is, look, was the focus on gaps and inequality misguided versus just a focus on levels, right? Like, should we expect some kind of, you know, continuous improvement, as they say at Toyota, um, separate from the question of, like, is it reasonable to say? Because, like, I don't know, right? It's like, if your parents don't speak English, and they're maybe not even literate in Spanish, like, of course, on average, you're going to struggle with reading. I mean, you know, like, I, well, what are the schools supposed to do about that? On the other hand, they could do a better or a worse job of teaching reading to English language learners. Um, then the other thing is, look, is this a resources issue in the sense that we need to focus more on equalizing the funding across the schools, which I think there's some evidence for? Or are we saying this is like not even about schooling at all, in which case it would be a big mistake to like waste a lot of political capital on equalizing school funding if what you're saying is that schools aren't significant and that like what we really need to be doing is addressing poverty, right? Or, or something else, right? So there's like there's a big ambiguity there around like what are you trying to say about the resources critique? And then, you know, Obama took this whole thing into a different space with like this much more specific focus on the idea of firing teachers, which I think in retrospect was like more clearly misguided than the earlier initiative that the like suppressed premise of what Obama did was that there was some kind of like reserve army of qualified teachers that principals were chomping at the bit to hire if only somebody would wage like a brutal political fight to let them dismiss more teachers. Um, but like Obama won that fight. And like almost nothing happened as a result of it because principals really hate vacancies, it turns out. Like there is not a large supply of teachers like available to go do this, particularly not in the like tougher schools that have more problems. And it's now, I think, really hard to like reboot a conversation about like teacher, like human capital type issues because Obama like poisoned the waters on it. But in, in retrospect, looks to me like much more of a like a supply side issue. It's like, what would you do to like get more people interested in teacher training programs or to make those programs be better or to somehow like create a situation in which there was like a bounty of like well-qualified people to do this work? And that was not in the original No Child Left Behind. That was like a that was a 2009 like add on concept that um, it, it became this like black hole, I think, of of education, like of K-12 education controversy. And it it didn't really amount to much in the end. Yeah, I think it's hard to talk about. We should talk about the waning days of No Child Left Behind and what the Obama administration in particular did with it, because I think that's been so crucial not to like what the law did, but to how we understand it and to how we perceive education reform. No Child Left Behind was by the time Obama was in office, seen as like such a problem and so punitive. 
that rather than like even offer a bunch more money, one thing they did to get states to change their education policy was just say like, we will waive parts of No Child Left Behind for you if you do other stuff that we want. And so it became this incredible, like not even a carrot, the carrot was just like a lack of a stick to get them to change education policies. And a lot of those were much more focused on testing. So there was this idea of teacher evaluations and that like, if No Child Left Behind like turned up the dial on testing, like teacher evaluations turned it up again. Um, and made them much more punitive for individual teachers who had, like, a good reason to be like, what is happening here? Uh, you know, why am I going to be evaluated on this? At the same time, like, the seeds of, like, the political consensus destruction were always there. It was a super fragile consensus about a specific moment in the Democratic Party, a specific moment in a specific election, uh, without, like, really deep philosophical commitments on either side to this, like, centrist idea that had already kind of evaporated but the people who had come up in the no child left behind world were still the people who were like very influential in running education policy no child left behind did some of the damage i think in retrospect it's the the obama administration kind of scorched the earth on it and sort of got it to the point where like going back to this is really difficult we haven't even gotten into the common core we could do a whole episode on the common core but i would say on the teacher question an interesting thing to think about here is Teach for America, which was initially premised on the idea that there weren't enough good teachers. And then that the answer to getting good teachers is to, like, give college kids from high from high um, prestige schools, like, six weeks of training and, and turn them loose. Teach for America has actually pivoted in kind of an interesting way to be more focused on, like, sustainable careers in education. And I think it's just really, it's like, an, you could sort of like see how the discourse evolves from like, okay, what we need to do is get rid of these unqualified teachers and bring in other teachers. Oh no, these like, these teachers are also unqualified, but just in like a very different way than the previous teachers were. And then this like underlying issue of like, how do we improve teachers, whether that's attracting people who are better for, you know, who are, who are of higher academic caliber to the profession in the first place or giving them more training or more like sustainable support, like we still really haven't made much progress on. Um, and a really depressing lesson of No Child Left Behind is that we did have like a decade of educational policy experimentation and like rigorous testing to see what was working. And we didn't come out of it with like a great list of like, here's what works. Um, and one thing I'm interested in seeing this fall is like, do we learn anything from this post-pandemic period about how you catch kids up quickly? Because that is like the thing that No Child Left Behind wanted to do. And we have still not figured out really how to do at scale. Sad. Sad, but also interesting. I know. I wish I had like more <laughs> of a, a an upper ending here. I did want to say with that regard, though, that like one thing that happens at like a more ideological level, right, is... It, as as a result of people not liking various aspects of No Child Left Behind, you start getting some people who are very geared up in this like conceptual critique of testing, which now means it's like not totally obvious to me that we will like ever get clear consensus on even like like what like what happened in the pandemic or, you know, were things that were attempted in catch up, um, you know, like good or not, right? Because part of the No Child Left Behind consensus was that looking at what was happening with NAEP scores was like an informative and important uh, thing to do in life. And I'm not sure in the modern world that like we have even that level of consensus in which we could like evaluate policies, right? I mean, it's part of the reason for this move back to a sort of hyper-decentralization of what's going on is that, you know, I don't think anybody loves standardized tests, but the whole point of, like, standardizing things is so you can do comparisons across uh, time and space. And if you decide you don't like that, you're left with local control because people can directly observe what is happening and decide if they like it or not and sort of adjust course concurrently. But like you can't do like studies and like try to say, oh, you know, what's happening here is good. What's happening there is bad unless you're you're giving people standard tests across the domain because, I don't know, I mean, that, that's just life. Yeah. And testing is still required without, like, states have to submit their own accountability plan and can kind of say what they want. Like, they're, they're, this hasn't totally evaporated, but we are sort of back where we were almost exactly pre-No Child Left Behind, which is like, you got to do some testing. It seems important to be able to compare across 
at least across states of like whose schools are good and whose schools are bad, except we can't really because the state tests are all really different, um, which, you know, is, is still an issue. But I mean, I think it's almost like I think it's almost bigger than that. Like a question that kind of drove me away from from the education beat is like, what are schools for? And the rationale for a national education policy is like, if we don't have good schools, we're going to fall behind economically. And this was like the thing in the 80s that led to the panic that led to all this eventually in the first place. Except like after 1981, when they were like, our schools are terrible, you know, 18 years later, we had like the economy of the late 90s. Um, And so I think we haven't even like, what are schools supposed to do is like a very philosophical question that people aren't spending a lot of time answering. But I think it's a reason that like we can't agree on how to make them better or even if we should make them better because it's like better for whom and and to what end. Um, And so I think like there's kind of a pendulum that swings between holistic, like we should be improving the whole child and improving what we teach and like minimum standards of like, no, it's super, super important that kids read and do math well. And basically there's been like a hundred years of things swinging back and forth. So I would bet that in like 10 to 15 years, we get another round of this in some capacity. I have no idea what that looks like. Libby, I have nightmares about that question. I was in college. I did my I did my senior thesis, and it was like related to some some questions on education, but very abstract philosophy stuff. And I'm presenting, and and Christine Korsgaard's on the committee, and she says, "Matt, just tell me, like, what are schools even for?" And I had no answer. <laughs> you and the American people both, Matt. It's that's a very relatable content story about a Harvard thesis presentation. And yes, I agree. It is very difficult to address these policy specifics when it appears nobody is really sure like what we're like what we're trying to do here at all or why. Um I mean presumably we will soon have a panic about um like China and math scores or something, right? Yeah, I think I think I really think round like we're due for a round of this. It's going to be about China and it's going to be in the next 10 years. Like it, it's it's going to all happen again. There, there will be some we didn't talk about Sputnik, but like there will be some Chinese Sputnik, right? Where everyone is like, "Oh shit." They did something that was impressive and now we're worried about math. So I think, so this is actually a question that I have is like, I would say if there's one thing I've learned from the past year and also from like five to 10 years in policy journalism, Americans are way more impervious to like another country did something better than we did than I think like a lot of the discourse assumes, you know? So it's, yes, like maybe if China like gets to Mars first, there will be a like, are we not teaching math right so that we didn't get to Mars first? But like... I don't even know anymore. I mean, I, you know, it's if if the thing is like they're outscoring us on tests, like that's already happening with a lot of countries. Um, So I'm curious, like what the thing is that brings this back into the discourse. It's clearly not like they controlled a pandemic. All right. Well, while we wait for China Sputnik, uh, you know, it has been a great sort of fun experiment. Uh, Thanks so much, Libby, for joining us. Uh, Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Chinakis. Uh, The Weeds will be back on Friday and the Weeds Time Machine will be back next Tuesday.